Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 358 of the podcast. It is February 10th, 2020. Returning to the podcast as our guest today is Steve Spear. He is a senior lecturer at MIT. He's the author of the book, The High Velocity Edge, How Market Leaders Leverage Operational Excellence to Beat the Competition. Steve is also the founder and co-creator of a software company and product called c to solve among the many other things that he does. Now, he's the author of two outstanding Harvard Business Review articles. We're going to take a look back at these articles um, here today. The first was Decoding the DNA of the Toyota Production System from 1999. And then the second one, published in 2005, is Fixing Healthcare from the Inside Today. So one of the themes for the episode beyond the lean and Toyota content itself is the evolution of knowledge. You know, I was curious to talk to Steve um, about this and in and, and his articles, but also what, what does that mean for a company, the idea of evolving our understanding of lean? Uh, what does that mean for an esteemed researcher and professor like Steve? So he was previously a guest in episodes 58, 87, and 262. You can find those in the podcast feed. You can also go um, to the page for this episode, leanblog.org 358. It'll have links to all of that, links to his articles, uh, his book. I encourage you to check that out. And I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Well, Steve, hi. Thank you for joining us again on the podcast. How's it going? Uh, fantastic. Thanks for having me. Well, it's always great to, to talk to you and, and, and hear what, what you're thinking about and working on. It, it's been a um, little over three years since we, we've had you on the podcast, and, and so it's really uh, nice to have you back. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of the listeners are familiar with you and, and your work, but um, turn the floor over to you, if you don't mind introducing yourself a little bit more of, um, you know, some of your background and, and, uh, and, and history. Oh yeah, sure. So, um, you know, by way of background where people might know me, I wrote an article back in, I think 99, which gets uh, cited and repeated back to me quite a bit called decoding the DNA of the Toyota production system. And that grew out of an effort to try and explain, um, two things, I suppose. One was, why was it that Toyota was able to get so much more value out of the work it was doing around designing and producing automobiles than anybody else? And uh, the second sort of related question was, given that so much time had been invested in and trying to uh, copy Toyota through the use of uh, lean tools like uh, uh, Kanban, continuous flow, standard work, and that sort of thing, why was it that Toyota was actually widening the lead on its... um, rivals and competitors. And just to put a, a parenthetical on that, the uh, the gaps that motivated so much inquiry about Toyota back in the 80s and uh, in, into the 90s, they still exist. When I last looked, uh, Toyota's profit per unit sold was something like uh, $2,700. Um, number two in the world was Ford, and they were one-third that. They were about $900 oh, per unit wow. sold. Uh, General Motors Chrysler, about $400 $600 per unit sold. They were about a quarter. I mean, the, the gaps are just staggering. Uh, just one last example, just to kind of whet people's appetite. Um, you take a look at uh, hybridization, combination electric motor and internal combustion engine. So uh, General Motors came up with the Chevy Volt, uh, sold about 160,000 units of that car, and then finally threw up their hands and said, ah, we're moving on to batteries. Mm-hmm. Um, Toyota faced with exactly the same challenge to meet the needs of a market, which we're looking for which was looking for uh, less smog, more uh, fuel efficiency. Uh, they came to market with the Prius uh, 10 years in advance of uh, the Volt. And um, they didn't stop with the Prius. They took the hybrid system, put it through, I don't know, five, six, seven evolutions of improvement, but then retuned it, repurposed it onto two dozen different platforms. Mm. And the sales on the, um, and again, Toyota is very careful. They don't say it sells a Prius. They talk about sales of hybrid. Uh, their sales of hybrid are um, over 16 million. I mean, the difference in outcome between uh, Toyota mm-hmm. Hybrid and Chevy Volt is 100 to one. I mean, it's crazy, right? Yeah, yeah. Cadill- it's funny. GM tried to make a Cadillac version of the Volt, which some sort of called Cimarron 2.0. If you remember uh-huh. that history right. of we're going to slap a fancier interior 
in a Chevy and call it a Cadillac that that sold very low volumes. And like you said, it seemed like GM just gave up. Yeah. And this is also a little bit of a parenthetical on the um, self-introduction theme. One of the things that's uh, really um, a takeaway from Toyota, sort of the big, you know, sort of mega meta takeaway was how here was a company that had uh, come up as its uh, modus operandi for uh, creating and then sustaining competitive advantage. It was going to do it on it on the basis of its learning dynamics. I mean, yeah, that's it. They, they said, you know what? We all go into the same marketplace, and the person who's uh, faster and better to understand the needs of that marketplace, they got a better starting point. And the person who's uh, better, faster to figure out how to meet those needs, the emphasis on the figuring out because you don't yet know how to how to meet those needs, um, to them goes huge spoils. And so you, you link this back to. Um, the uh the Cimarron with the the Volt technology inside. Um, you know, Toyota's starting point, and I think General Motors may have missed it on, on in that particular example, is the very first thing you have to do is lean deeply, deeply into the problem space and in a very empathetic fashion, uh, discover, learn, experiment as to what the real need is you're trying to satisfy on before you offer a product or a service. Yeah. Uh, in, in the case of Toyota, there's some really telling examples. So um when they decided that they, they wanted a presence in the uh, full-size truck market, they said, well, what do we know about full-size trucks? And the answer was very little. We, we make mid-size trucks and uh, you know, make Tacomas and they're all right, but they're not a full-size truck. So yeah. uh, the design engineer said, let's go find out what people actually expect from a full-size truck. And there are these really great stories within Toyota about their design team uh, going to NASCAR races and offering people rides <laughs> in different um, full-size pickups to uh, say, hey, what do you like this like? Going to construction sites, you know, different weather, different environments to say, hey, what do you like? What do you dislike? And that was the uh, information that informed the Tundra. Uh, yeah. You see a similar sort of immersive approach towards, you know, and again, it all starts with, um, we don't know what the market really wants, so let's go find out. So the, uh, the um, story within Toyota is that the, when they were trying to uh, really up, step up their game on minivans, the chief engineer there drove minivans um, in all of the 50 states to, again, try and figure out what delighted and disappointed people in minivans. And it was his 50,000 miles in 50 different states, which uh, informed the first uh, version of uh, Toyota's uh, minivan. So um, you get that. And then it just sort of the, the funny one is that when Toyota first tried to do luxury, they took... Uh, a predecessor of the Avalon and kind of like in your GM example, they blinged it up, you know, a lot of Chrome yeah. and leather and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. The sales on it were crummy because uh, the Toyota value proposition is affordable reliability. And this thing was less affordable. And it was like, all right. And, and if you're looking for a luxury car, you don't go to a Toyota dealer. Yeah. So they said, ah, you know, we really don't know what we're doing here. So let's go find out what we don't know and come to a better understanding, at least of the target first. So the story there is that uh, the, <laughs> the design team got, you know, exiled to go live in Beverly Hills <laughs> for like six months. And they shopped at Rodeo Drive. They ate at the Four Seasons, et cetera. And what they came to appreciate was that um, luxury was only in part the product. It was uh, a big part of why people paid the prices they did in those different, you know, quote unquote, luxury settings. It wasn't the product so much. It was its service. It was that when you walked in, things were smooth. They were graceful. They were hospitable. Um, there were no glitches, no obstacles. Immediately, uh, you know, someone was trying to understand you, understand your needs, understand your circumstances. And when you look at the Lexus, um, the business model there is definitely not BMW or Mercedes because the Lexus doesn't look like any of those things. Mm -hmm. The business model is, hey, we're going to sell uh, uh, an affordable, reliable, slightly fancier car, but the sales and service experience is going to be that of the Four Seasons Hotel. And, and if any of you, if you or any of your listeners ever have an opportunity, I encourage you to go uh, in the same day, go to a Toyota dealership mm. and a Lexus dealership. And in both cases, you're going to be treated great, right? I mean, that's my expectation. You go into the Toyota dealership, though, and everything about the place, the, the lighting, the furniture, the floor treatment, et cetera, the, you, you know, is going to say, you come to a place where it's going to be reliable, but affordable. And when you go to the, the, go have the same experience, sales or service at the Lexus dealer, um, the experience you're going to have there is uh, we're going to treat you really well. Yeah. So come in, I mean, relax, kick back. We're going to treat you really well today. Anyway. Yeah. And, and there's different dimensions of, 
of quality. I mean, I think like in terms of like hotels, um, the difference between a Hilton Garden Inn and a Ritz Carlton, like you can get right. a good night's sleep in both hotels. Right. And, you know, they, they can be, uh, you know, good at what they are and what they promise. But I certainly wouldn't expect, I don't think I've ever stayed in a Ritz Carlton, but um, I, I wouldn't expect that level of service at, at a Hilton, a regular Hilton. Even. Right. Yeah, that, that's right. Because you go to the places that, um, you know, the brands we associate with, oh, I'm traveling on business. I just want to get a good night's sleep and I don't want to pay too much for it. You go and you expect a certain level of um, comfort, a certain level of cleanliness, hospitality, but you don't expect frills. And in fact, the frills would really be distracting because you'd say, <laughs> why am I paying for frills? I'm, I'm, I'm going to be in this, in this hotel for all of eight hours. <laughs> now, there are other places you go where when you walk in the door, you want someone to say, and this is the Four Seasons experience, they walk in and say, Hey, Mark, welcome back. You know, we noticed um, that you used a lot of towels because, you know, we have this great shower and spa-like bathtub. So we put extra towels in your room. Or we noticed you ran out of coffee. So guess what? We stocked up a couple extra capsules uh, for the Keurig machine in, in your room. Uh, a couple extra mints on the pillow because we noticed, you know, by the chocolate wrappers in the trash. And, and that became the model for um, Lexus. And then when you go to the Lexus dealer, it's... Uh, it's efficient, it's effective, but it's a little bit more. When you, you, you walk in, you actually sit down in an office rather than go to a kiosk to check in. Hey, how you doing? You know, what's been going on the last six months since your last tune-up? How's the kids? How's the family? Anything going on we should know about in terms of uh, it might have changed your driving habits that we should look at the car. And again, uh, you know, tying that all back, um, I mean, all interesting stories, but I think they reveal a really critical point is yeah. that uh, Toyota built a business model and a management system which starts with the uh, assumption that we don't know what we need to do and we don't know how to do it. And so the very first thing we have to do and that what we then have to do continuously is go figure out what to do and how to do it and constantly learn and, you know, by everyone all the time. And so you take a look at, you know, Tundra, Sienna, Lexus, et cetera, what you're really seeing is an expression of that sort of optimistic humility that, uh, uh, yeah, we don't know what's going on, you know, and geez, you know, how to fill the cart. Gosh, that's a, that's a huge mystery to us. But uh, that's the humility part. But the optimism is, you know, but really, really um, energetic, diligent, enthusiastic about this learning thing. Good God, what can we accomplish? And what yeah. they've accomplished is really remarkable. Well, and so you, you kind of bring up, um, you know, this question of, uh, you call it learning dynamics and this difference between going into, the development of a new product or service or a startup or even an improvement project in a hospital, there, there's a big difference between knowing the answer and then moving forward versus this idea of, well, we're going to figure it out. And maybe we have frameworks for figuring that out, whether that's the Toyota product development system or the lean startup methodology or A3 problem solving. They, 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 these can be frameworks for for learning and figuring it out. That, that's one of the key differences with companies like Toyota, right? Right. That's right. So what you mentioned is you, you went through a list of some very um, uh, effective tools um, appropriate for you know, one circumstance or another. Common to all of them is that they guide you in the direction of first starting with the question, what is it I don't know about the situation? Mm -hmm. Then, you know, further the question four, well, what can I capture about the situation, you know, the current condition? Um, what's not working in the situation? You know, so going back to the A3 metaphor, you know, what's the, um, in the current condition, not only what is happening, but what's happening that's disappointing? And then, then leading on to the next question, and you see it's all questions, right? Which is yeah. what's going on? What's wrong with what's going on? And the root cause, which is why is it going on or going on in a bad way? And, and again, you know, that's, I don't know for sure, but this is my best guess, my best informed guess. And then um, another question, which is uh, given what's going on, you know, right and wrong, and the reasons I think it's going wrong, what could, again, a question, what can I do differently? Corrective action countermeasures. And then, um, and then another set of questions, which is, um, you know, given uh, how things are currently operating and, you know, why I think they're operating that way, the root cause analysis, and what I think are reasonable changes. What, I think, what do I think is going to happen when I put those changes in place? Boom, target condition. And so you, you see built into these method, methods is um, sort of little prods, nudges, uh, little, uh, you know, 
assists to help the person using these tools constantly ask questions so they get to a better one recognition of what they can't answer and also get to better answers uh, through this uh, active questioning experience. But I'm curious your experience working with organizations that are not Toyota or not the U.S. Nuclear Navy or other organizations that you've written about. If somebody is trying to, they say, like, we want to be the Toyota of whatever industry. Yeah. Um, I mean, it seems like there's there's this habit or like like people are really comfortable with or they feel this need to want to know things or at least to pretend like we right. know things versus, uh, a, you know, uh, along with a discomfort of saying, I don't know, we'll figure yeah. it out. Discomfort with uncertainty. Right. What were some thoughts about, you know, um, trying to change that mindset? Yeah, so uh, I'll use your question and just sort of uh, follow up a little bit in terms of the the personal history because the question yeah. about um, organizations not Toyota outside of autos. So uh, you know, just quick reference uh, for folks who haven't seen the materials. So we we talked about healthcare organizations which were trying to become the Toyota of their sector mm-hmm. um, in an article called "Fixing Healthcare from the Inside," and. Um, you know, it's, it's not recent, but more recent cool. than the uh, DNA article. It was, was about 2005, was right? Or it was the fixing article, right? Yeah, probably 2000, yeah, 2005. Well, and then and, my and, book, and, um, yeah, go ahead, sorry. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but the, the title, it also includes a comma today, fixing healthcare right. from the inside today. Right, Yeah, that's right. You know, and what we're trying to emphasize there is that, um, well, sometimes there are these uh, large structural things that are either uh, time-consuming to uh, understand or time-consuming to uh, remediate. That doesn't mean you can't start right now. Yeah, uh, and, and, and it kind of ties back to what we've been discussing, uh, Mark, which is uh, the basic premise here, which is um, we enter situations, and particularly complex dynamic situations, uh, handicapped by what we don't know. And it, if we enter those situations, you know, again, not knowing about what to do uh, nor how to do it, there's no reason we can't start right now coming to a better understanding. You know, we don't have to wait for the assembly of a blue ribbon commission, you know, appointed by the governor or the president. We can, you know, could look around, you know, left, right, up, down, 10 feet. You know, uh, I'm, I'm already swamped with things I simply do not understand. So uh, hence the, uh, the comment with the emphasis today, you don't have to wait. Yeah. And, and yeah. there's, I think, uh, and when you wrote the article, this is really before the major health healthcare reform efforts, um, you know, during the Obama administration, right. and, you know, there's this question of, um, are, are we expecting the big systemic change and what is that? And if it's coming to your point, what could we do today right now? Yeah. And yeah. It, that's right on. Cause if you think about it, you put yourself in 2005. So that's some context. So around 2000 Institute of medicine, um, had uh, published these reports, which were saying uh, just how hazardous healthcare delivery was to patients and actually care providers too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so after that, you can imagine people with a policy orientation were saying, oh, well, what can be done in Washington or Albany or Boston or wherever else, um, Austin, to uh, fix that? And um, that leads in the direction of, oh, woe is me. There's nothing I can do. Mm-hmm. And um you know, fortunately, there were, were a handful of people, uh, uh, you know, uh, different places. You know, I spent a lot of time with folks in um, folks in Pittsburgh, but Appleton, Wisconsin, out in Seattle and elsewhere, Cleveland, Cincinnati, who uh, said, well, what the hell, you know, if, if we're going to wait on Congress to get anything done, it'll be our grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, let's get started today. And, you know, we I think what we demonstrated pretty solidly, uh, both with the uh, you know, our own work on which we reported, but also documenting um, what other people had done, is that even in sort of this uh, dysfunctional, I don't know, it's, I think we insult the term system to call it a system, but within this dysfunctional <laughs> vertical, that's American healthcare and American healthcare payments, you could still make huge improvements. I mean, we, we had examples where um, people took these horrible complications and, uh, you know, like surgical site infection, and eliminated them, just you know, yeah. down to zero. Come to my hospital, have surgery. Don't worry about the MRSA. Um, you know, ventilator-associated pneumonia, gone. Uh, central line infection, gone. And it wasn't as if, um, uh, you know, that, then you get the pushback. Well, you know, what's the cost of quality? 
The answer is yeah, right. quality is wickedly free. It's actually pays for itself. And you know, one of the guys we've worked with, uh, he's now at um, at Duke. This guy Rick Shannon, he, mm-hmm. he wrote up. You know, they had gotten rid of central line infections, ventilator pneumonia, and a bunch of really horrible other things. They wrote it up and said, "Damn, we're making a whole lot more money doing this because uh, you know, having someone readmitted costs a lot of money onto the system. Um, having someone extended day of care where we're not doing anything procedural." a huge cost on the system. Then, you know, if we can actually come and treat someone and get them on their way in a, you know, a a, a well-conditioned state, everyone's better off. Eliminating MRSA is not a Lexus or Ritz-Carlton level of service that should be just built into any product. Like you would expect your um, Toyota Corolla is not going to just randomly explode as you're driving down the street. Yeah, yeah. The wheels should stay on, you know, in the first 50,000 miles of driving. That's right. They should not come off the rims. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, so you know, you asked about, you know, examples uh, outside of auto. So, you know, then um, when I wrote the, the High Velocity Edge, I think about 2010, you know, we looked at other examples and um, – that, that book, because it's a book, not an article, we had lots of opportunity mm-hmm. to really dig into the uh, the culture, behavior, norms, beliefs inside of Toyota. Really, um, I think, coming to a much richer appreciation of the um, learning dynamic and its uh, points of emphasis. But we, you know, we had examples in there of um, Pratt and Whitney saying, damn, you know, we keep losing these really expensive contests. Um for the right to put our jet engine on someone else's airplane. And it was really a, a, quite a Toyota-like uh, appreciation. You know, the, the folks at Pratt & Whitney, they said, you know, why is it we keep losing these contests? And, you know, they, they, they barreled through the technical reason and the organizational reason. That, you know why we keep losing? Because that's all we know how to do. We don't know mm-hmm. how to win. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason we don't know how to win is that um, the approach we're taking is inadequate to get a winning jet engine. And so what they did is they said, uh, well, let's take this uh, <clears throat> let's take this approach to learning and throw it onto the process by which you design a jet engine, which is many years, billions of dollars, thousands of engineers. And wouldn't you know, they, um, they ran that program with a huge amount of constant feedback. Yo, engineer, this is what you don't know. Yo, program manager, this is what you don't know. This is what you don't understand. And then, you know, linking that back to our A3 problem solving, every time one of those problems popped up, they said, oh, we're not going to work through. We're not going to work around. We're not going to just sort of muscle on. Let's ask the question, why do we have that problem? And then once we understand why we have that problem or have an under- a belief as to why we have that problem, uh, let's make a change to our approach. Anyway, long and short, what happens with Pratt? They take uh, a process which um, they thought it would take four years to design a jet engine. Uh, and they got it done in three. And uh, they looked at the uh, history in terms of uh, – engineering change orders as they go through the, they, they cut that in half. And wouldn't you know, um, you know, I say this with you know, gigantic air quotes, but the simple act of um, acknowledging that they didn't know how to design a jet engine well, but they could learn their way to the right answer about how to do that. They ended up winning the contract for the uh, F-35 Lightning II. Mm-hmm. And just off the top of my head, that's like $10 million an engine, 3,500 engines. That's a $35 billion hmm. swing in fortune. And that doesn't even include uh, service parts and maintenance. I mean, you know, yeah. so, uh, you know, profound fortune shifting for a company, which all it did, you know, again, with air quotes, all it did was say, um, we only know how to fail. We don't know how to succeed. So if we want to succeed, we've got to learn a whole lot more than we currently know. And and, and that shift to learning, um different than, you know, organization may have just blamed somebody every time oh, yeah. there was a failure instead of thinking about systemic failures. And, and I'm, I'm just thinking back to, uh, <laughs> just got this vivid memory. I'm just going to share a quick story. The last manufacturing company that I worked for was uh, Honeywell. Uh-huh. And in the one business unit, I, my, my cubicle, and, you know, I was out on the shop floor most of the time, but I had a cubicle and right. it was near the woman who was the executive assistant to one of the vice presidents. And I had heard that one of the sub business units had um, you know, replaced its president and there was an announcement coming and the admin was talking on the phone, probably to another admin. And um, I, I hadn't been there that long. And, and I heard her say, and she said, you know, they keep replacing presidents every year and maybe one of them's going to figure it out. 
<laughs> and like, but the problem might not be any of those people who had, you know, high potential people who were then apparently promoted or moved into this place that was like a death sentence for your career. Right. Who would take That's that right. job next? But anyway, yeah. it's interesting, you know, that, that blame dynamic is really ingrained in a lot of leaders and a lot of organizations as well. And, and, and that's got to just interfere with learning that. Right? Exactly. You know, and, and it's wild because the person who's uh, next up, the guy or gal who's uh, hiring, firing those presidents on like this uh, 12, 24 month tack time. Right. <laughs> They're not thinking like, you know, maybe I'm taking someone who's been really successful and putting them in a completely corrosive environment. Maybe I own some of the responsibility for that corrosiveness, you know, like, no, 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 you know, yeah, it's right. just, yeah. But you know, it, it actually, Mark, it really reflects on something really <laughs> sort of uh, discourage, discouraging, right? So uh, whoever is making those uh, 12, 24 month assignments, they're getting pretty good feedback that there's something wrong with their process, right? Because they, you know, Hey, that guy's really doing great. Let's put him in that job. Oh, he sucks. Oh, that gal's doing really great. Let's put her in that job. Oh, she sucks too. It's like after two, <laughs> three times through this, don't you say, what the hell am I doing wrong? You know, you know, the, the, I mean, but you know, the, you know, this is, comes back, even if at a more micro level, looking right. at a control chart and statistical process control and the, the voice of the process, you know, the process is talking to you. It doesn't right. mean someone's going to listen. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things I try to um, say is that uh, no matter what our hopes, expectations, predictions, no matter what those are, reality gets the final veto <laughs> and uh, we then have a choice right which is um do we respect the veto and ask why you know why the universe i mean you think about it, the universe is 15 billion years old and fairly infinite in size right so in a contest between what Stephen Marx think and the universe and if the universe <laughs> disagrees who should we listen to right I- i'm thinking the universe here Right. But what often happens is, ah, no, I'll try it again. It's like, why? The universe just told you you don't understand. Yeah, but it might take a while for the universe to win. So we still hold out hope that. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, I know. 15 billion years. I mean, it's it's got, you know, it's got patience. It's going to keep winning. Yeah. So, well, um, so if it's okay, you know, I want to kind of bring things back to, you know, one one topic we were going to um, explore today. You know, you, you mentioned the decoding the DNA of the Toyota production system article um, from, you know, 20 years ago. And right. like you said, it's still, uh, still very often um, mentioned and cited and, you know, and, and, and used, um, you know, the, one of the frameworks from the article, um, you know, just recap for the listeners, if, if they're not familiar with the articles, um, you know, the, the four rules or what are sometimes called right. the rules in use from the decoding the DNA article. And then fixing healthcare from the inside today has uh, an, another framework. Um, you, you talk about four capabilities, four right. organizational capabilities. And so I, I want, one thing I wanted to explore today is like kind of your thoughts on how research, um, knowledge, evolves or changes or you know i think you use the phrase um, being you know talking about being on the frontier of knowledge right. um i was wondering if you if you could talk about that so a difference in six years between the articles um kind of just your, your thoughts on that continued learning um where you know if, if it wasn't a continuous learning dynamic for you um you'd say like no nailed it this is a great article it's best selling people love it I'm done, but that's, that's not right. how, that's not how you're, you, how you operate. Right. Right. So, um, let me, let me just offer this is that, uh, I don't know if it's a universal principle, but certainly a good general one. Um, all progress is incremental and just to sort of anchor people on this, you know, back in uh, 1961, president Kennedy said something about, uh, sending a man to the moon by the end of the, you know, and returning him safely to earth by the end of the decade, and uh, that was actually accomplished, right, with Apollo 11. But uh, the first manned flight of the human space you know, of, of the American uh, manned space program uh, was uh, uh, Alan, Ar- yeah, um, Armstrong Shepard, right? What did he do? He Alan took Shepard. off, yeah, right. Yeah, Alan Shepard, right? So Alan Shepard, what did he actually accomplish in terms of getting the moon and coming back safely by the end of the decade? 
Um, well, he beat the end of the decade thing, but he, he, he took off and he landed 18 minutes later. <laughs> that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that was important because until Alan Shepard took off and landed, it wasn't clear that the United States had the capability to uh, have a man safely leave the earth at you know very high velocity with all his forces <laughs> and whatnot and come back safely without you know mm-hmm. splattering. And it, it wasn't until uh, two flights later where uh, um, John Glenn went up and he went around the earth three times. Again, you know, you start thinking the distances involved, right? They're minuscule compared to getting to the moon and coming back. But it, it was necessary to establish um, one level of uh, threshold and stability to then use that as the platform for the second and the third flight in the Gemini program, the Gemini program into the uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the Mercury program into the Gemini program, and then the Gemini right. is the basis into Apollo. Now, the, the other thing I just want to emphasize in terms of this incrementalism. So um, there was a movie, uh, I think it was Ryan Gosling last, um, last year called First Man. And, yep. you know, it sort of dramatized uh, the crew of Apollo 11. Sort of gives you a hint about incrementalism, right? It wasn't Apollo 1, it was Apollo 11. Um, you know, actually leaving the Earth orbiting, rendezvousing with their... Uh, their spaceship, you know, making it to the moon, orbiting, da da da, boom, boom, right? And they get back, and since that's um, the summer of 1969, they they beat the president's deadline of mm-hmm. uh, within a decade. And he started asking people, well, you know, what was the big accomplishment of Buzz Aldrin and Alan Shepard, uh, Neil Armstrong? And uh, people say, oh, well, they went to, but you start looking at it, yeah, they as two people went to the moon, landed, took off, you know, and, and returned to Earth. But what did they do that was new? And most people say, oh, but they were the first people to go on the moon. And it's like, yeah, sort of. Because the crew of Apollo 10 did everything, almost, right? They, they, <laughs> they launched from Florida. They orbited. They got themselves organized. They headed off in the direction of the moon. They orbited there. They um, started the descent to the moon. And they got within 47,000 feet of the surface mm-hmm. of the moon. And you just put that in some perspective. For people who travel, you know, coast to coast, um, you're flying almost as high as they were off the surface of the moon at 47,000 feet. Um, they knew if they sort of said, Hey, what the hell? We're here already. Let's go to the moon and back. Um, they had been told that there wasn't enough fuel to get back home. Right. So there was a very strong sort of <laughs> carrot stick thing going on with the folks at NASA around this, but they got within 47,000 feet of landing. So then when you look at that's Apollo 10. Now, when you look at Apollo 11 and say, um, what did those guys do that was new? The answer is 47,000 feet down, walk mm-hmm. around a little bit, and 47,000 feet back up. And I'm saying that sarcastically, um, sure. <laughs> not to diminish what they did, but to make the point, is that um, accomplishment is incremental. And I defy anyone to find a giant accomplishment that wasn't anything but incremental. But anyway, tying that back to the research question. So... Uh, you know, we were curious, what the heck is Toyota doing that all these other people trying to copy Toyota are missing? And I did this sort of very deep, immersive, karate kid-like uh, <laughs> deep dive into Toyota and uh, in the operating environment. And I was able to come out of that and say, oh, my gosh, look at this. They've converted all their workflows, all their workflows into feedback-generating experiments. And I think we use the term in the article, you know, community of scientists. And so – of those rules in use, because they're not rules written on a wall or like, you know, tablets of the uh, Ten Commandments in a courtroom, right? Um, we said, you know, look, they're very, very deliberate about how they um, predict the flow of work. They're very deliberate about um, predicting, um, pre-specifying exchanges in the flow of work. And they're very um, disciplined about predicting, uh, defining, pre-specifying the actual approach of design, conducting a task. So when they do any of those things, they get feedback. So those rules, one, two, and three. Then the fourth rule was we said, you know what? This whole experimentation thing, when they have a problem, mm-hmm. um, they actually solve the problem as an experiment too. Right? Boom. That's what we got in 1999. Now, we kept looking at Toyota and said, well, does that explain everything? And it explains some of it. You know, and, and sort of like the, um, the Mercury program explained how you take off orbit and land. And the Gemini program explained how you take off orbit and do sort of complex things on long duration flights and land. Um, you know, the, the article was an increment in terms of understanding. But what it didn't explain, what we came to really appreciate um, as we continued interacting with Toyota and then trying to apply the lessons elsewhere, 
was that we were, we were missing um, big parts of the management system. So, um, so we had captured, I'd say, you know, 75, 80%, mm. how you design an operating system so it gives you feedback. Great. That was rules one, two, and three. We <laughs> captured, um, I'd say, 75, 80%, how you make an improvement so it's actually a bona fide feedback generating experiment. But one of the things we didn't capture at all in, in the article was, let's say you learn something. How do I benefit from it? And, and, and so um, when we started talking about these capabilities, which appeared in, first in the healthcare article, later in the book, we were able to add increments and say, well, he, here's what you do there. He, here's how you um, take a local lesson and systematize it. So that became capability three. If capability one was how you design a system for feedback. And capability two was how you solve problems with feedback. Capability three was how you take that feedback and make it systemic. And then, you know, the other increment was which we had a lot more time to uh, observe how um, Toyota leaders cultivated, uh, nurtured, sustained this um, continuous learning, uh, continuous experimentation um, uh, culture. Mm-hmm. And so that became the fourth capability. So uh, anyway, you know, back to, you know, the question about advancing the understanding. It's like, look, you know, it, it, I think the basic premise, you know, you and I have talked about a lot is um, anytime you're in a situation, your understanding of it is imperfect. So what you do is you try to grab your best understanding, say, all right, well, that's what I think I know. Now, what is it I don't know and how can I advance it? So, you know, the 99 article was, you know, best first attempt. And then we try to build on it uh, since then. So, I mean, you, you talk about the evolution. Um, I think that happens with any of us, um, myself included, in, in, in our careers um, as, as we get exposed to lean or the Toyota production system. Um, in different ways in the workplace. And we, we, we may have a mentor or somebody who's educating us and we think we get it. And then we learn, okay, no, we don't understand as well. You know, through, through practice, maybe, you know, there's, there's feedback uh, that we get that hopefully we listen to, we, we get exposed to others. I, I, I think there's a parallel in how anyone's understanding might evolve from uh, you know, thinking about a few lean tools, some management practices, more about the culture and the philosophy, you feel like your understanding, you know, hopefully evolves and doesn't just get stuck in, well, here's what I learned in my first class and I'm certified or belted and I know it. Right, right, right. As opposed to, I'm just starting to figure it out. Right. Um, and, and, and I think back even over history of the lean movement, if you will, like, I'd be curious your, your, your thoughts on this, of course, like there, there was that first wave or, you know, like the, like the language that was used. Um, there's a book called Japanese Manufacturing Techniques, which is right. early books. And then there were a lot of books or, you know, people would frame it as just-in-time manufacturing. Like right. the Wall Street Journal today, <laughs> poke at them sometimes. Their, their, their understanding somehow hasn't evolved. They still refer to, to anything Toyota-ish as just-in-time. Um, and, and, and there, you know, so there was this kind of subset understanding of lean. And then, you know, I think there was a, a phase where, well, it's about a broader set of tools. It's not just about just in time. Right. And then people start realize, well, it's also about how we manage and it's also about problem solving and it's also about culture and coach. So, I mean, I think the lean movement for what that is, um, has evolved and grown over time. Um, it, 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 I guess that's just how things work. If you if you want to call lean a field or a discipline, it, it works that way in other fields. You, you talked about rocketry as right. an example, right? Yeah, and I think what I would do, first of all, I agree wholeheartedly with your point, is that there's this evolution. One of the things that, I don't have a, a point of view on this, but what we might want to do is think a little bit about the term we actually use to describe the process. Because evolution implies, um, you know, Darwinian, you know, variation, selection, retention, but also implied in that is discarding that, um, you know, these traits, these features were valuable and then they, we discard them. And, and that's true, right? Because there's a lot of things that as our uh, learning advances, uh, there are certain practices we discard. I mean, I, I'm looking out my window now. I don't see anyone on a horse. Um, 
you know, uh, there goes an Uber, you know, and there goes one of those uh, electric rentable scooters, but no horses out my window today. So discarding does occur. But I, I would say the thing we often um, forget, you know, and this ties back to the incrementalism, is that uh, our understanding today didn't displace our understanding yesterday. It added to it. Mm-hmm. That yesterday, there were certain things I knew, and I had a certain confidence and clarity, and there was a range of application. And hopefully, I learned something between yesterday and today, and um, I've got better clarity, better certainty, better range and application. It's not like the stuff yesterday was um, I'm discarding. I'm just understanding it better. And and the reason I bring that up, and I, I don't want to like become like a semantics fanatic on this one, <laughs> is that um, th- this this idea of incrementalism and Alan Shepard had to take an 18-minute flight because that's all we were able to do in 1961. And if he hadn't taken that flight in 1961, only, you know, quote-unquote, air quotes, only 18 minutes, um, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin would never have landed in 1969. And so I think it's important for us to recognize that um, the small wins are wins. And, And in fact, the small wins or the bottleneck step onto the next small win, onto the next next one and the next one. And if, and if we didn't build up a, a record of small wins, we never have the giant leap of accomplishment. So well, I was wondering if, if you could if we explore a little bit more. You know, you talked about you know, going into um, Toyota. You, you, know, you joked about your karate kid experiences. I, you, you had more than one Mr. Miyagi, if you will, right? Trying to help. I'm, I'm just curious to kind of explore, like a little bit of the process of having people explain what might be. If you use the analogy, you're asking the the fish to describe the water right. that they're in, and and like you said, it's not like these rules were just posted on the wall. That there, there was a process of of understanding, drawing out, synthesizing. This is going back a ways now, but I'm curious if you can kind of share you know, memories or reflections of how that came to be. As were there, were there drafts of the rules in use, um, you know, and feedback cycles around? Okay, is this? Yeah. Um, so the, you know, the fish water thing is interesting, right? Because um, the folks at Toyota, the way they taught this really was karate kid kind of thing. I mean, when I went in there, you know, sort of like I was going native, right? So uh, mm-hmm. day one, I'm like, oh, excited. I'm going to learn the Toyota production system. It's like learning the force from Yoda. And um, I, mean, I really thought that, you know, if you think about the time frame, Yoda was really a relevant metaphor and, and grown Yoda, not baby Yoda. And uh, I get there the first day and the guy who was my Yoda, I said, all right, I'm here to learn. And he says, all right, go find out what the factory makes. The what? Said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, go find out what the factory makes. And um, so I go in and I, I come back at the end of the day and I said, oh, you know, hey, Mr. Yoda, here, here's, what, uh, here's what I think they make. And he says, uh, well, how'd you find that out? I said, well, I asked people. I said, what do you make? And all he said was, do you trust them? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, how do you know they're right? And I had no answer to that. And then he left. And, I, and so I, take two, I had to go back again. And I come in with a different list, which uh, this time I went to the accounting office. And he said, how'd you get that list? He said, what's that from? I said, well, you know, I, I, they seem to be trustworthy, honest people. I think, you know, it's the Midwest. It's not, you know, it's not one of the urban centers on the East Coast or the West Coast, right? I mean, it's trustworthy people. Um, and uh, just anyone listening who thinks I'm, I was joking. I'm, I'm a native New Yorker and live in Boston, right? So that's self-deprecating. Um, and he said, where's this list from? I said, you know, the accounting department. I said, look for what they invoiced. He said, well, you know, are you sure they made that? And, and anyway, the reason I bring that up is um, I got very little explicit direction, you know, or say, oh, this is the Toyota production system. And anytime they did say this is the Toyota production system, it was like they were talking tongues about basic thinking and inner motivation and then like what is the yoga class um the way they teach it is this very experiential approach now the advantage i had is that um that wasn't my own set of experiences right so i could go elsewhere and make contrasts. that's one form of experimentation right which is just uh sort of inductive look at a look at b um see how they differ in performance and ask uh, how do they differ in behavior so that was one Mm -hmm. thing and you sort of start writing that up 
and um, you say, oh, I, I'm, I'm developing a theory. And the other part is deductive experimentation, where you say, I have a theory, and I'm going to go test it out, see how well it works. And um, when it works, it's like, yay, you know, I wasn't wrong. Um, and when it doesn't work, you say, yay, I have a chance to improve my understanding, right? But um, anyway, the, the, I think the advantage I had versus uh, the typical person at Toyota is um, I was there social scientist, but as a scientist, and anyway, yeah, actually, it's a good parenthetical here. You know, take, taking this research in a very, very scientific fashion, I owe credit to um, two mentors. So one is Ken Bowen, mm-hmm. who uh, I met at MIT before I went over to Harvard to do this research. And the guy is like an uber genius on ceramics. So the fact that he was um, encouraging me to do social science with the disciplines he had acquired as a laboratory scientist, not surprising. The other one that I just I think it's timely to mention is that uh, you know Clay Christensen, mm-hmm. um, father of disruptive innovation, passed away this past week. Right. And um, Clay was hugely influential not only in my thinking but my approach because Clay was really thinking really really hard about theory of theories. What's the theory by which you can construct meaningful theories? And so this whole notion of um, making rigorous observation and then describing what I saw and seeing how things classified and characterized and see if out of that, I could extract, I'm sorry, out of that, can I extract some um, hypothetical causality? And that was hugely influenced by Clay's, uh, you know, heavy hand on my heavy, but caring hand on my shoulder. And then flipping it around to sort of the deductive um, test of theory that also reflected, um, Strongly influences this guy Kent Bowen and also Clay Christensen. So anyway, I just want to you know take mm-hmm. opportunity to shout out that I would be nothing, nothing at all without <laughs> their. Uh, and I say that a little sarcastic, but it's actually quite true. My professional career would be wildly different, and I think uh, far worse without the influence they exerted mm-hmm. in terms of the sense making. That was uh, my experience with Toyota and elsewhere. Well, uh, and and and, th- and thank you for sharing that and 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 for the shout out. Um, I, I, I just a quick aside when I was at um, Sloan as an MBA student um, from 97 to 99, um, we, we were exposed to um, Christensen's work. Um, and, and I think I'm trying to, I don't, what year was uh, the innovators dilemma published? I think it was right around that time frame. right around that time. Yeah. So he was still, I think in, in certain circles, um, a bit of a, a cult hero. And then he hit, you know, mainstream, um, right. uh, recognition, you know, uh, Silicon Valley and, and beyond. So, um, I was very fortunate to, to be exposed to that kind of, uh, thinking and, um, you know, just another parenthetical within the parenthetical. I did my, um, LGO internship. I don't know if you know this, Steve at Kodak. Oh, 1990. No, 1998 Kodak. Imagine putting yourself there at that place in that time. And they were still very much in a state of denial about digital imaging. Right. At that point. And when I'll, I'll try to close the parentheses at the end, (laughs) but they had, uh, I remember an executive, it wasn't um, Fisher, the CEO at the time, but somebody very high up at a strategic level giving a talk to a group and with a straight face saying, because of the um, spread of digital imaging, we are going to sell more film and more paper. I'm like, what? Like, what do you (laughs) mean? Like, you know, digital cameras were either just a really crappy toy or I was in the area that was making the really high power digital cameras that like Sports Illustrated photographers were using. Right, so right, cameras right. were either really amazing and really expensive or really cheap or relatively cheap and really crappy. And I'm thinking like, is, do, do, do they believe this or is this just the story they're trying to tell Wall Street? The universe is not caught up to them yet. You know, but but the argument was, well, when when people get exposed to digital photography, they will eventually move up to real photography, which they defined as paper and film. right. But I mean, a lot of this seems like textbook innovators dilemma kind of situation where they they didn't view digital photography as as a real threat. Yes. So um, I wrote something to uh, 
a friend of Clay's to, you know, thinking through what um, Clay's, if you really had to boil Clay's contribution down. And uh, it ties so solidly into what we're discussing about um, having this open mindedness to learning. But if you look at Clay's uh, thing about disruptive innovation, he said, you know, all of us want to get good enough that we can say, hey, man, I'm in a groove right now. Absolutely. I mean, who doesn't want to be in a groove, you know, and be really good at what you do? And he says, there's a risk to that, right? And this is the disruptors and what you're describing with Kodak, which is once you're in a groove, um, the groove can become a rut. And uh, once you're in a rut, you stop looking as to um, what's wrong with the groove or the rut you're in. And you stop looking around yourself. And Clay's advice really is... Um, I think, you know, far more than a corporate advice. He says, you know, once you find yourself really good at something, look around and come to an appreciation of who else is out there whose needs in the moment aren't being um, even recognized, let alone satisfied. And um, if you can see that, and it's going to be hard to see because you're in a groove and you're focused really, really hard on... uh, the needs you're already um, meeting and satisfying. But if you can look outside of your groove and uh, come to appreciate those who aren't even seen right now and uh, orient at least part of your activity to their needs, you might accomplish great things. Mm-hmm. Now, um, that, that really is the essence of kind of the disruptive, uh, the innovator's dilemma and the innovator's solution, right? Which is um, you know, you're in a groove and you're chasing this high-end products, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? What the hell? Go set up an independent standalone team and let them explore for you. But as a life philosophy, and I think Clay um, modeled it, is that um, it's not a bad life philosophy to have also, which is, hey, you know, I'm in a groove. I got, you know, what are my family, professional, economic situation is? Hey, I'm really grooving along. But, you know, t- take a look down the, you know, take a look uh, out your window across the street, down the road and say, yeah, but while you're in your groove, is there somebody else who's not? And can you lend a hand? So uh, anyway, um, I think there's a, a lot that we could uh, learn from Clay, um, you know, whether it's, uh, like you said, uh, the late 90s when he was just entering people's consciousness or even now. Um, and he, he wrote a book later, about 10 years later, called um, The Innovator's Prescription about mm-hmm. healthcare, And um I just want to connect dots back to, you know, the, the, the progression of, of your articles and, and then your book, you know, decoding the DNA of the Toyota production system, some of the general principles uh, for, for people in almost any workplace. And then the fixing healthcare from the inside today article. I mean, in, in a way, I mean, that, that has lessons. It's not just about fixing healthcare. It's about right. fixing organizations. And, and, and I guess it did, is that then, part of what led to the, the book, The High Velocity Edge, not just having a, a, a longer book instead of an article, but, but kind of drawing lessons back out more broadly. I mean, I hope people outside of healthcare who are listening would go read the Fixing Healthcare from the Inside Today article because there's a lot of great lessons there. Maybe those lessons weren't getting to people because it on the surface looks like a healthcare article. What are your thoughts? On yeah, that? that could be, look, you know, back to our a notion of, uh, evolution, incrementalism, layering. Um, you know, we went into Toyota and had these uh, really wonderful insights about how you create processes that offer feedback. And because they offer feedback, they create the opportunity for improvement. And then when we uh, had this op- you know, marvelous opportunity to vector into the Pittsburgh health community, um, you know, we started to try to put those, you know, again, it's good science, like Kent Bowen and Clay Christensen were encouraging. It's good science. You've got some ideas, go test them out and find out what you don't know. And, uh, you know, it was in the healthcare community there that we said, you know, there's really this huge leadership element, which is um, depending on how senior leaders act, it really has a profound effect on how well some of this other stuff uh, gets picked up. And so it was experiences in that community where we really had an opportunity to start building out the model from just not the design of the operations to the problem solving, the knowledge sharing, and the leadership posture. And then uh, once we had um, gotten that in the healthcare community, then the next science question is, um, you know, you have uh, kind of your, and I'm paraphrasing on the Einstein thing, making no other comparison there, right? But, you know, 
all right, fine, you have your special theory, but is there a general theory here? You know, Einstein, mm-hmm. you know, special and general relativity. Mm-hmm. And um, we said, well, let's go test this elsewhere and see if we can observe it elsewhere. And what we found is actually there was a general theory of um, management where um, the power, the strength, the duration, the speed of the learning dynamic uh, was the source of competitive advantage. And um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, I do encourage people to take a look at the healthcare article because it's uh, short and colorful. But then take a look at the book to say, you know, how do you take the, the special, you know, those um, vertical specific examples? How do they apply more generally? And then there's that difference. And, uh, you know, the, the book gets into this um, describing a Toyota and making progress toward becoming more Toyota ish or however right. you would want to frame that. And, you know, I, I, I um, I, I, I know some people who um, left Toyota and then have struggled and, and, and they've shared, like, you know, someone I know who gave a presentation at a conference, um, uh, Jess Orr, who you know, I appreciate her um, vulnerability and, and humility to talk about. You know, it was, it's one thing to work at Toyota for, I don't know, it was five years or something like that. And then to go in and try to help somebody move in that direction is, is, is a challenge and a yeah. growth opportunity for her. And I admire that she's in that, well, we're going to figure it out um, mindset as opposed to being viewed. There's the risk of like, well, you're the expert. We hired you to fix us, which is, I, it seems like a very non Toyota way. I'm not saying yeah. her organization did that, but right in that a lot. And you've probably run across it. The, uh, the expert. Yeah. Well, it, it's a it's a great bracket on the conversation, right? Because she said, um, "Become the Toyota of my vertical," and I think what happened was a lot of people thought that becoming the Toyota of my vertical meant um, having just in time pull systems, uh, low inventory, low cost, etc. And they thought those were sort of the independent variables. Oh, you know, get rid of middle management, get rid of inventory, etc. And um, I, I don't think there was a, a full enough appreciation that um, those performance variables, those are the dependent variables. The, the consequence of being an organization capable of learning so much so fast for so long meant that you could run an organization with um, very low inventories, uh, <laughs> you know, far fewer people, you know, more productive, far more responsive. So this, you know, crazy combination of, uh, resilience plus agility um not because you wake up one day and say oh mark uh let's uh, decide we're going to be a resilient agile organization <laughs> you, c- you can't do that what you can do is hey mark let's decide that what we're going to do to be the toyota of our vec- our, our vertical is we're going to learn a ton we're, we're going to go into work today and say what is it we don't know and try and leave um saying here's what we've learned um that we didn't know this morning and if we do that and we start doing that every day and we do it uh, faster and faster and we get more people to do that, that's being the Toyota of our vertical. Mm-hmm. And then what'll be, what the result will be, just you know, our ability to uh, uh, deliver incredible levels of value in a resilient, agile way to the marketplace. But it, to be the Toyota of our vertical means that we're very, very um, energetic in discovering what we don't know, seeing problems. We call that the first capability in the Mm -hmm. book. You know, how do we manage ourselves so we see problems? And we see a problem, how do we uh, solve those problems also very energetically so that we have something to share that became the third capability. And and as as we wrap up here, maybe I'll I'll propose as an exercise and I'll 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 be the first to take this on myself. It's interesting that you frame it, Steve, as let's list out the things we don't know. Where again, I, I think there's that habit and comfort in anchoring ourselves in the things we do know, whether it's from education or experience or, or, or what have you. Yeah. So let, let me offer um, the folks listening to this um, some homework. So it, it's kind of a, a self-diagnostic. We, we've actually done this. Is, um, you know, for whomever you're responsible, you know, you, you know, it's not like you're in charge. It's, you know, it's kind of, but you're responsible. Your job is to make sure that they can do their job. Um, end of the day, 
just in a very friendly kind of way. Say, yo, Mary Sue, Bobby, Billy, you know, whomever. Um, Hey, just before you go, I just want to check in. How was your day? And uh, see what the answer you get. Now, let me give this a very particular example on this, is that we did just such a test with people queuing up for a shuttle bus to the train. And we went out there and said, hey, you know, um, how was your day? What'd you get done? And uh, the answers were, well, oh, I'm glad you asked. You know, I I, I synthesized this many um, different compounds. I ran this number of uh, different tests. From those tests, I generated this number of reports. Um, Oh, we're setting up a new uh, data system. I wrote this much code today. Now, we we did this and it was everyone gave an answer, which was literally their physical productivity or metaphorically their physical productivity. And uh, the guy I was doing this with uh, was running a very large research facility. So, you know, we stepped back, looked at this gigantic building with the hundreds of employees in it. He said, you know, why does this building exist? To make stuff? And the answer was no, because uh, in commercial pharmaceuticals, uh, to have a commercial product, you have to produce it in the mega gram volume. In this side, this facility, they were making things for testing in the microgram. It's a 10 to the 12th order of magnitude difference. It doesn't exist to make anything. The whole facility exists to discover stuff. And yet when we went up and down this, uh, this queue for people getting on the shuttle bus, and he asked people, what'd you accomplish today? Not a single person. And again, let's put this in context again. Not only is the facility existing to do really early stage uh, um, R&D, everyone on that line has at least one PhD in a natural science. And when you ask people with PhDs in natural sciences who are making things at the microgram level, what they accomplished, they'll tell you how many micrograms they created and not what they discovered that day. Mm. And he's like, oh my, <laughs> and he just put his hands in his head and, you know, I mean, you know, uh, figuratively started to sob because that's mm. not why they showed up eight, eight o'clock that morning. They showed up eight o'clock that morning carrying in things that no one in the world knew and hopefully leaving at five o'clock in the evening, having answered at least some <laughs> questions and not a single one defined. So anyway, back to the homework is that uh, no matter what work um, you know, any of the listeners are supporting, um, you know, part of that work, people already know what to do and how to do it. But a big portion of that work, they don't. They don't know what to do, um, and they don't know how to do it. And just do the test. Uh, you know, today's Friday, we're recording this, and I don't know when people listen to it. Whatever, whatever the, equivalent, the, the workday, equivalent of, workday equivalent is of tomorrow, whatever tomorrow is, Tomorrow, end of day, go ask people, hey, you know, hey, goodbye, you know, thanks for coming in, thanks for your effort, thanks for, uh, well, what'd you get done today? And uh, I'm willing to bet, no one says, oh man, I'm so glad you asked me that question, because my answer is I learned something. I'm willing to bet no one gets that answer back. And as a the day after tomorrow, make sure you start the day with the question, hey, before we get started, Mm. what is it we don't know? And so at the end of the day, we can have a conversation about what we learned. And if you could do that every day, what is it we don't know at the start of the day and the start of the shift? And uh, make sure you loop back at the end of the day. Hey, what did we learn about that really hard problem? You, you, you're at least on, starting on track to being the Toyota of your vertical. Well, that seems like a great note to end things on, to use uh, as a bit of a, a musical analogy, but... Um, but Steve, thank you um, so much for uh, share, sharing the time and sharing your thoughts and, and having the conversation. Um, I'll think back, what, what did I learn today? And this will, this will be part of that. Um, if, if people want to learn more um, about not just your articles, but the work and the things that you do, um, can you tell the listeners, you, you've got a website, what, what, what's that address these days? Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, if anyone wants further information, the most current website we have now is um, uh, you're kind of the, the principles we've been talking about, you know, see a problem to solve it. So the website is C2Solve, S-E-E-T-O-S-O-L-V-E.com. Go there and we got uh, some links to articles and some other stuff we've been up to. But, uh, you know, start there and uh, certainly if you've got questions, um, get in touch. Great. I'll encourage everyone to go um, check that out and to go 
uh, check out the, uh, the, the articles and uh, the book, The High Velocity Edge. So again, our guest today has been Steve Spear. Steve, um, thanks a lot. And hopefully we, we can do another one of these without uh, what, what, our, our tack time. Uh, shorter than three and a half years. Yeah, what's the hell? A, a year, no more. Sure. No, no. But any, anyway, uh, next couple of weeks, next couple of months would be. There's a lot more to discuss because, Mark, you know, you think about what's really fundamental. What we're talking about is how do you manage an organization so that every day people can tap into and better express more and more of their innate potential to be creative. And uh, it strikes me that that's a, a conversation that shouldn't lapse. That should be just the yeah. ongoing conversation. Well, and thank you for that conversation. Thank you for responding to my pull signal to uh, to talk again and to do a podcast here. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. And thanks for asking. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.